from McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast whose enthusiasm is contagious. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Discovery of Viruses. Hello, Chadwick. Good afternoon, Michael. What are we talking about today? Well, uh, recently observed a guest lecture, and it was about viruses. A small little bit of that guest lecture was about the discovery of viruses, and it just reminded me of how interesting that was when viruses were first discovered and what the evidence was and hmm. how it changed, how it went from what what was known at the time to then this revolution of this entirely new kind of entity on planet Earth. And it's a really interesting story. And so I delved into some more of the background on it to kind of flesh it out. And I thought it would make for an interesting conversation. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's my so, contagious enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right. It, so to start, what what is a virus? So a, a virus, the most basic kind of virus has some sort of genetic material and that genetic material can either be DNA or RNA. Okay. And then that genome is enclosed within a capsid, which is, you can think of as just this little outer protein covering. And that capsid off. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's so good. And, <laughs> and for the simplest viruses, that's it. They've got just a genome and a little protein covering. And some viruses might also have a layer outside of that called an envelope. And that's usually like a lipid bilayer that the virus steals from the host cell that it has infected previously. But not all viruses have an envelope. So the most basic level, it's a genome surrounded by a little protein outer covering called a capsid. And that is much, much simpler than even the simplest kind of cell. So within a cell, we have all kinds of molecular machinery that carry out functions like cellular metabolism and a lot of molecular machinery that will self-replicate the genome and build new protein structures and take those protein structures and build up organelles that carry out these metabolic functions within a cell. Okay. But a, a virus doesn't do any of those things. It's just a genome with a little sheath of protein around it. Oh, so unlike a cell, like a cell has stuff in it. Do all cells have a nucleus? Yes. As far as we know, all cells, whether they are unicellular organisms on up to multicellular organisms, the nucleus where the genome resides is a fundamental feature of a cell, yes. All right, so they have a nucleus, that's where the DNA generally is stored, and then it has machinery in there to turn DNA into RNA, right? To transcribe it anyway. Just transcribe it, there you go, okay. Uh -huh. And then there's other machinery that will turn some of the instructions on the RNA into proteins that do other things. You said that there's organelles such as the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> well, eukaryotic cells have mitochondria, and so that's the, quote, powerhouse of the cell. Yeah, but plants might also have photosynthesis Synthesis chloroplasts. stuff. Chloroplasts. Uh huh. So there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And then, oh, maybe you also have some things that are fighting, pushing out things that ought not to be in there. Uh huh. Yeah. You've got little organelles that are manufacturing. Uh, if the cell secretes something that's manufacturing whatever is being secreted and then packaging it up and transporting it to the surface and then releasing it. 
Okay. Yeah. So there's there's a lot going on inside an individual cell, and a virus but isn't doing any of those things. None of it. It it's not even making yeah. its own copies or anything like that. It just has instructions to get inside and hijack what your cells are are trying to do otherwise. Yeah. And this is one of those things that I think a lot of people when they're first getting into biology like to think about a lot. Ooh, are viruses live? Are they living or not? Right. Let us consider the various ways in which they are similar and yet not similar to living things. And I, it's a fun activity and it's fun to sort of think about because it makes you think about what are the minimal requirements to call something a living thing. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not like that's the main focus of research in virology or something is trying to once and for all settle the question, yes or no. Are viruses living? And right. it's like, well, I mean, the answer is, well, a little bit of both. And so that's what makes them interesting. Okay. But anyway, they are also much smaller than the vast majority of bacteria. Hmm. And so it's not uh, hard to imagine that that's probably why they were discovered a good 200 years after bacteria were discovered. And so we'll travel back in time here to like the late 1800s. When... Oh, we're not doing that yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it's kind of worth thinking about what was known at the time and what the gap in understanding was at the time. So this scientist named Van Leeuwenhoek, he had he was one of the people with a primitive microscope in the mid to late 1600s, early 1700s. And he is credited with the discovery and first notice about bacteria. Okay. He was able to zoom in far enough that he was able to see these tiny little living things moving around in a sample. That was in the late 1600s. And so by the time the late 1800s rolled around, you know, there was 200 years worth of knowledge about bacteria bacteria as a thing. Mm -hmm. But there were still illnesses that seemed to lack a definitive causative agent, something that you could actually see. Oh, so you're saying that, well, I used to work one summer I spent working in a reference lab at a hospital and people would have various illnesses and we would streak these plates and then, mm -hmm. you know, you'd grow the, the bacteria on the plates and then you'd be able to take a sample and stain it and do all this to see that's you right. know, what it was. And so you're saying that that's all that was all possible. But then there were some diseases that they would do that and nothing would grow on the plates or they could never ever see anything on, under a exactly, microscope. Exactly right. So it was hard to attribute what this particular illness could be caused by because there was no bacteria that seemed to be causing it. Hmm. And viruses were too small to be seen with microscopes that were available at the time. Hmm. And so there were all kinds of ideas about what might be the thing that would cause some of these illnesses, like something about an infectious fluid or, you know, other, even, <laughs> other things that seem even more far out. And so that brings us to like 1880s. And one of the well-known plant diseases was this thing called tobacco mosaic disease. Okay. And so this particular malady would affect members of the nightshade families, so Solanaceae. So that includes things like tobacco, tomato, eggplant, peppers, tomatillos, lots of different somewhat closely related plants. And for tobacco, it would cause their leaves to take on this, this yellow modeling color. So the name mosaic, it looked kind of like a mosaic. Mm. And then that would drastically reduce the yield of the tobacco plant that was having this condition. Okay. 
And it could also be transmitted. It was noticed that it could be transmitted from an affected plant to other neighboring plants. And so if you rubbed a leaf that had this yellow color discoloration on it onto a healthy plant, that healthy plant would pretty quickly start demonstrating symptoms. You could even, just in handling an affected plant, you could transmit it by indirect contact to a mm-hmm. healthy plant. Or if you were using the same sort of farm machinery or garden tools or or things like that, it could be transmitted through direct or indirect contact. There's even some evidence that it could perhaps be transmitted by aphids. So if aphids fed on an affected plant and then moved over to a healthy plant, they might uh-huh. be able to transmit it, right? So that was known that it could be moved around. But what was being moved around was much more difficult to figure out. So that that's a little bit of, about the spread. Why it was a mystery is because researchers, Meyer, who was a German, and Ivanovsky, who was a Russian, would take the sap from the plants and they would pass it through a really fine porcelain filter. And this really fine porcelain filter had tiny, tiny little pores that would allow the fluid component of the sap to go through, but the pores were so small that they strained out any bacteria. And so the only thing making it to the other side was stuff that was smaller than bacteria, or at least the bacteria that they knew about at the time. And then they could take that stuff that had passed through the filter and rub a little bit of it onto a healthy plant, and that healthy plant would start to exhibit these conditions, oh, okay. yellow discoloration. And so in the mind of most people studying this kind of thing at the time, that seemed to rule out the possibility that this was a bacterial disease okay. because whatever it was, was too small. And so that one of the things that it was thought it might be is like some sort of liquid, something about the liquid itself that causes mm. the disease. So then fast forward, maybe a decade or so. Then by the 1890s or so, a Dutch dude, Beierink, he was interested in this question as well. And he did the same kinds of experiments that Meyer had done where he filtered the sap and filtered up, you know, anything that was bacteria sized. And his key insight was that he would take just a really, really small quantity of the filtrate and inoculate healthy plants with that very small amount. But then the disease would sort of spread throughout the entire plant. So if it were, right, if it were just this tiny liquid causing, you know, like a skin irritation sort of thing, Mm -hmm. rather than this systemic thing where you inoculate this leaf, symptoms appear all over the plant, and then you take filtrate from a leaf way far away on the plant from where you originally inoculated it. Mm -hmm. And that filtrate now can perpetuate the infection in a new plant. That shows you that from the small amount that you initially inoculated, whatever it is must be getting replicated and expanding throughout the plant. Yeah. Now, did he do any tests like, well, if I put just a small amount on here, it takes it longer for it to make the whole plant sick or... Yeah, I don't know if he did any tests on exposure amount. That would have been a clever thing to do because you would expect that a larger exposure would lead to like a more rapid onset of the symptoms. 
But yeah, but yeah. I, I get your point that it's not just an irritation. It's not just some sort of reaction just to a, a tiny little bit of the fluid. Clearly, there's something that from that fluid is then reproducing. And so maybe it's right. just a really small bacteria. Right. Well, we'll get to, to that here in a moment. He was the first one to actually coin the term virus. And his key insight in this experiment that he had done was that whatever this contagion is must be replicating itself or being replicated. Mm-hmm. And his inference was that this reproduction was going on inside of the living cells of the plant itself. And so he was the first person to make that connection between this thing that's causing this disease. It's too small to be a bacteria. Mm-hmm whatever it is, is getting lots of copies of it made. And that copying is going on inside the living cells of the plant. Okay. But exactly what it was. So now at least it had a name. He coined this name of a virus. Was there a purpose behind calling it virus or? From Latin, literally slimy liquid or poison. Well, so that makes sense then that. Yeah. They're getting this gross liquid from there and then. Yeah. And interesting. Yeah. That, that is interesting because it, it's still sort of tied to this infectious liquid idea, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than a real kind of granular, three-dimensional, discrete molecular structure to it. Mm-hmm. And so that didn't come until the 1930s. Researcher, last name of Stanley, was uh, an X-ray crystallographer. Mm. And so he got a sample of the the infected sap from some of these plants and did whatever you do when you do x-ray crystallography. And maybe you can help me understand what's (laughs) what's going on with x-ray crystallography. But the end result was that he saw these tiny, tiny rod-shaped entities Mm. in the fluid. And those things were only in the fluid from an infected plant. They were not in the fluid from a non-infected plant. So that's, Mm. you know, all the things that demonstrate that, yes, these are the things that Uh create the infection. And sure enough, they were much smaller than any known bacteria at the time. And so I guess what what is going on with x-ray crystallography? I, I have a vague sense of what it is, but what what exactly is happening with that? Well, this is not my area, but I Uh I know a little bit of what's going on is that, you know, x-ray, that's the type of light. Mm -hmm. Some techniques that people do is they will grind something that, so it has to be a crystal. It has to be a repeating unit of some sort. But oftentimes what you can do is pulverize it down to a sort of a powder shape. But even in the powder where you think you have just like random distributions of things, you still have tiny units of, you know, so imagine like if I had a mirror and I broke it down into tiny little pieces. I still have all these little shards that are reflecting light, you know, and mm. yes, they're oriented in different ways, but you can kind of see like, okay, well, if if I'm getting this much from it, that must be the size of this particle. And there are some patterns that kind of form out of that. Mm. And it's possible then to work backwards and say, okay, well, if I'm getting these patterns on on the downstream end of it all, then you can kind of work backwards and figure out what the structure is sort of upstream. Uh, okay. But it gets very mathematical at that point. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about the crystal business, right? Because I'm thinking of like the functional version of these molecules. And so like DNA or RNA, it's got this characteristic shape Mm -hmm. and repeating units of certain little repeating subunits that make up the entire larger molecule Mm -hmm. when it's in its 
functional form, it is, I don't want to say liquidy exactly, but it's not like this rigid, hard kind of rod. I mean, x-rays are too big to actually see individual atoms, I think. So you're looking at, you know, larger structures than that, but it must be, I mean, DNA was discovered through crystallography as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was one of the pieces of evidence that verified that it was the ladder and all that stuff. Right. I mean, it would not be surprising then that they would look for this and try to see if similar to DNA, if there's some structure of something from that. Well, this was happening prior to the 1950s when the uh, x-ray crystallography of DNA was done. Oh. So this was this is in the early 1930s. Hmm. And, and so I think it's it's probably a little bit more rudimentary than the initial images of DNA suggesting that it was this twisting ladder shape. Well, so even then I I could imagine maybe, you know, if you had a pile of viruses that maybe you'd see structure just from this pile of them somehow. Mhm. Yeah, I don't know if I added to anything with that. But. So anyway, this Stanley guy figured out that it would be an interesting thing to, I guess, dry out some of this sap and mm. then do some x-ray crystallography yeah. on the dried out sap. And he discovered that there were, in fact, these tiny, tiny, smaller than a bacteria, repeating little, just little rods. And that was the first visualization of a virus. Hmm. So not only was this the first the first uh, visualization of an actual particulate entity that was responsible for the tobacco mosaic disease, uh-huh. it also proved that it wasn't a very, very small bacteria that was doing it. Because remember, up to this point, the strongest evidence against a hypothesis of bacteria is that they were using these really fine filters that mm. they thought should strain out the bacteria, but maybe it's a super small bacteria. And the reason it, that viruses can be that small is because they don't have all that extra stuff, all that exactly. extra baggage, Yeah, because they're not spending any resources to replicate or do all the other things. They're hijacking our stuff. And so it's sort of like if you go on vacation Rather than packing a bag, you just plan on stopping at the airport store and buying swimming trunks on the way. Yeah. You're just going to wear the uh, hotel bathrobe the entire time. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And so apparently bacteria don't crystallize. Um, So that was another piece of the evidence is that the fact that they crystallized like this readily into all of these identical tiny little repeating units distinguish them from any sort of bacteria which are not amenable to crystallization in the same way is that just a question of my cartoon of like a cell would be if you remove all the fluid it's just sort of a flaccid balloon or something like that just yeah where instead of like a little tiny latex balloon the thing that is containing it is this little bit of grease Mm. the lipid bilayer of of the cell membrane Mm -hmm. and so i guess it would be sort of like trying to crystallize butter okay And so another thing that Stanley discovered from his ability to crystallize the virus was its uh, composition. And he found that there was a little bit of RNA and then the rest was protein. And then that was it. Hmm. So no lipids or anything like that, which all cells would have at least some lipids that make up their cellular membrane, as well as the membranes of all of their inner organelles. But you said this is before they were able to do that with DNA. Well, they had not yet 
done it with DNA, the crystallization. So the, the DNA that was used in those was was from like cell cultures mm. that Franklin like extracted out the DNA. And so the visualizations that she was doing were not of whole cells. It was of the DNA that had been chemically extracted from the cells. Oh, and since RNA is outside of the nucleus anyway, it's easier to just extract that. And so that was a technique that could happen earlier than the DNA? Well, but keep in mind that that this RNA was not in a cell. Hmm. And so it was just floating around free in the sap hmm. that was extracted, the, the liquid of the plant that was extracted from the plant. Hmm. Yeah. And so you, you put all of those things together and you've got this little contagious entity, something about its size and its composition and the way in which it duplicates itself, the inference being that it takes over the cellular machinery to make more copies of itself. Hmm. Stanley earned a Nobel Prize in 1946 for these experiments where he uh, did the x-ray crystallography and learned more about tobacco mosaic virus. Congratulations, Stan. Yes. Way way to go, Stanley. Uh, (laughs) Naturally, it was a Nobel Prize in chemistry. All the most interesting biology Nobels are in chemistry. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's no separate bio one. There's medicine. That's right. There's medicine. Yeah. And literature. And there's physics, chemistry, medicine, Medicine. literature, and peace. Anyway. But no mathematicians. No mathematicians. Because apparently Nobel... Like his wife left him for a mathematician or something. So I don't know if that's true, but we'll spread it along. Yeah. Like a virus. We'll spread that story like a virus. (laughs) Yeah. By the mid-1930s, we had a reasonable understanding or at least a, a working model for what viruses were and how they transmitted. And so other things going on at this time. And well, let me back up for a second. One of my hobby horses is helping people, especially students, understand why an understanding of biology broadly is interesting and important, even if you don't intend to go into a particular sub-discipline, it's worth knowing a little bit about all of it. And so, for example, knowing something about plants is interesting because plants have been really interesting for discovering all of these really fundamental ideas about biology. And so here is yet another example of an incredibly important discovery with obvious medical human self-interested reasons. And it was discovered in a plant. Hmm. Like mm-hmm. viruses were discovered because somebody was studying plants. So And so once again, it turns out tobacco was good for us. <laughs> yeah, if you take nothing else home, <laughs> um, from this episode. I hope that's it. Yeah. Well, I'm from Kentucky. So that's that's the message we have to. <laughs> but it is interesting to think about some of the other discoveries that were happening at this time related to viruses. So okay. in about the late 1800s, early 1900s, the first virus in humans was discovered. Okay. Was... And what disease was that? It was the thing that caused yellow fever. Oh, so yellow fever is a viral disease affecting humans that is transmitted from one human to another human by a mosquito. And so Mm. it was first demonstrated that it wasn't bacterial, too small to be extracted from Mm -hmm. uh, the fluid. And second, that it was a contagion of some sort. So... (laughs) Think about the era this was in. This was 1900. And so the experiment that you would guess 
you would do was what was done, right? So some individuals who were infected with yellow fever had mosquitoes feed upon them. And then those mosquitoes were allowed to feed on an uninfected person, volunteers. This was going on in Cuba. It was actually done by Walter Reed. Oh. I don't know if he's a doctor exactly, but in the military, mm-hmm. the U.S. military. So he and his research team demonstrated that first it was mosquitoes that transmitted it from infected people to healthy people. And second, that it seemed to have a lot of the same kinds of properties that other people were noticing about tobacco mosaic virus in terms of it being too small to be a bacteria, that it hijacks host cells to replicate itself, mm-hmm. that an infected individual can create a new infected individual who can create a new infected individual and so on. Huh. Where do viruses even come from, though? You mean like originally? Yeah, like the, they're these tiny little things smaller than bacteria. Are they Were they like the first things or are they a newer phenomenon? That's a really great question. And if you think about the entire phylogeny of life on planet Earth, like all living things, right? From animals and fungi and plants, mm-hmm. and then now include the bacteria. If you trace it back far enough, it all has a common evolutionary history. And okay. we know that for many reasons, including that we all use the exact same genetic code. There is an incredible amount of overlap in the cellular machinery of how that genetic code is read and replicated, transcribed, mm-hmm. translated. We're all playing from the same book, basically. Hmm. And and so then the question is, where do viruses fit on that broader phylogeny of all life? Mm-hmm. Do they fit in just one place? Maybe there are actually multiple origins of viruses, which I don't have any particular insight, but it wouldn't surprise me if at some point we discover evidence that viruses perhaps arose multiple times Hmm. because there are very different kinds of viruses. Some viruses use RNA as their genetic material. Some viruses use DNA. Hmm. I don't know. It's entirely possible that maybe there's more than one origin. I don't know. But some ideas is that perhaps viruses represent like a degenerate version of a more complex ancestor. The logic is that many obligate parasites have ancestors that were once free living organisms that had all the organ systems to do all the things that in free living organism could do. But once they threw a long arc of evolutionary history became obligate parasites, often many of those functions go away. So they depend absolutely on their host to fulfill those certain roles. Like a good example, they're tapeworms. Okay. Tapeworms are an obligate parasite. They are related to a broader group of flatworms, many of which are just free-living little terrestrial or aquatic worms that eat detritus and make their way in the world. But here's this example of a flatworm that lives only in the intestines of animals, and it has completely given up its own ability to feed and have a digestive tract and all that kind of stuff. It Hmm. makes its living just by absorbing nutrients out of the digestive tract. So my point in that story is that It is a fairly common pattern for obligate parasites 
to lose a whole bunch of what otherwise in free living organisms would be essential kinds of abilities. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's the pattern that viruses followed. Okay. Maybe they are the descendants of ancestors who were once free living organisms, but then by taking up this obligate parasitic lifestyle, they gave up all of these things like metabolic machinery. Another idea is that maybe they are escaped genes from a cell. So there's this phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer, where without actually undergoing full replication, a cell might receive a portion of genetic material from some other living cell, hmm. right? So maybe the cells come together and they form these little connections and there are these little things called plasmids that might be passed from one individual over into another individual. And now that individual that received that plasmid can do whatever that the genes are capable of doing on that plasmid. Well, here we have this genetic material that's moving around from one vehicle to another vehicle to another vehicle. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the origin of viruses is these little genes that are being transmitted horizontally escaping from their cells and being able to persist in the environment outside of a cell for a period of time. Hmm. Another idea, another possibility is that perhaps both RNA and DNA viruses are predecessors of cellular life. I so this is going you... the other direction, like the you've talked about so far, we're all maybe this, these started out as cells and then gave up the lifestyle. And we're like, oh, I can just camp out over here and then camp out over there. And I don't need to carry all this extra baggage with me. Yeah. or the, And so this would be maybe DNA and RNA, some sort of protovirus that somehow had the ability to duplicate itself. Maybe that preceded full on cellular life. So potentially they were they were the early steps and then later generations sort of built up infrastructure around them to be able to keep doing what they're doing more efficiently. Yeah. yeah, that's that's well put, like built up the infrastructure around them, right? And so in order for a DNA genome or an RNA genome to be duplicated, you might need a, you know access to a certain number of other kinds of resources in the environment, mm -hmm. right? And then if that were all contained within some sort of housing that kept it all close together, you're starting to get sort of like a proto-cell kind of situation, mm -hmm. thing that has the infrastructure around it for more rapid duplication and functionality. Hmm. So anyway, that that's very much an open question, and there are people very interested in in doing that kind of research. But it's all kind of standing on the shoulders of what we talked about earlier of this first discovery of viruses in tobacco plants and its hmm. eventual characterization as a particulate infectious agent that has this discrete crystalline structure. Interesting. Well, thank you, Chad. Thanks, Mike. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have questions about nature or ideas that you would like us to address in future episodes, email us at chriscrossingsci.gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.